Well, it's the most dreaded question of the interview. You know it's coming. You've prepared for it. But when it's asked, nothing you say comes out right. Tell me, the hiring manager says, what's your greatest weakness? How do you answer that question? If you don't say anything, then you come off as arrogant or unteachable. But if you come out with the truth, you might not get the job. So what do you say? A popular job search website offers some uh, strategies for dealing with the dreaded question. Uh, one of the strategies, one approach, is to disguise your weakness as a strength. Well, I, sometimes I'm such a perfectionist that I expect too much of myself and my colleagues. <laughs> Don't you want to work with that guy? <laughs> Another approach is to minimize your weakness by explaining how you've already overcome it. Well, I tend to be a very task-oriented person, but I've learned that working with people is the best way to get things done. Or a third approach is to go ahead and admit the weakness, but make sure it has nothing to do with the position you're being hired for. <laughs> so if you're interviewing for an accounting position, it's probably not a big deal if you're not a creative kind of a person. No one wants to reveal or lead with their weaknesses. Let's say you're creating a profile for some matchmaking website. You're probably not going to lead with neurotic, out-of-shape slacker looking for a relationship that will last longer than my previous three marriages. <laughs> not a good way to start. We hate to admit our weaknesses. We don't like to admit it to ourselves, let alone to other people. But who are we kidding? We know we have them, like every human being. We learned earlier in our study from the Apostle Paul that really we are nothing more than clay pots. Ordinary, everyday containers that are easily cracked, chipped, and sometimes even broken. And like every clay pot, we come with weaknesses and vulnerabilities and, and imperfections. But what we've been learning is that God can take the cracked and broken pieces of our lives and put them together in ways that are downright beautiful and, and useful and wonderful. So we learned that God can meet us in our sorrows, our suffering, and offer us so much comfort that we're not only comforted, we're able now to go out and comfort others with his love. We learned that God can forgive our failures, so much so that we're free to actually start all over again, to begin again. We've learned that God can find us in our loneliness and alienation from one another and restore us to relationship with him and with one another. And today we're going to discover that God can take our weaknesses and do something powerful with them. Now this happens to be the final message in this unbroken series. So we're going to conclude at the end of the message today with a story brokenness to beauty story, and then allow ourselves a moment to bring some aspect of brokenness to God. So we'll get there at the end, but let's go one more time to this letter of the New Testament that we call 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 12, verses 7 through 10 of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations... There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, Paul wasn't applying for a job when he wrote this letter, but in a sense, he was defending his job. If you remember the setting for this letter of 2 Corinthians, there were many people in the Corinthian church who were challenging Paul's authority, who were questioning his credentials as an apostle. Earlier in the letter, Paul actually references some of the accusations that they're making about him. In chapter 10, he writes, For some say, his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive, and his speaking amounts to nothing. Ouch. As a fellow preacher, that hurts. But they weren't just criticizing his preaching and his personality. They were actually looking at the hardships and of his life, the imprisonments, the beatings, the, the, the accusations, the suffering. And they were pointing to that as evidence of the fact that God was not with him. And so Paul finds himself in the awkward and uncomfortable position of having defend himself to the very church that he founded. And so in the previous chapter, he refers to some remarkable spiritual experiences he had many years ago, 14 years earlier, in which he was, in his words, caught up into a third heaven, we're not sure what that means, and was given insight into spiritual realities that are beyond most people's experience. Now, this was a very big deal to the folks in the church in Corinth because this is a church that was all about the spectacular. Visions and voices and gifts and signs and wonders and, and ecstatic experiences. In fact, that's what the, the, the leaders of that church, those who were challenging Paul, that's where they were citing as their credentials, these visions and voices. And so Paul is saying, in effect, you guys... I was having ecstatic experiences when you were still in spiritual diapers. But in the end, Paul chooses not to boast in those revelations as significant and remarkable as they were. He chooses instead to boast about his weaknesses and about one in particular that he calls his thorn in the flesh. He writes, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. So in all kinds of speculation as to what this thorn in the flesh was, that word thorn suggests any sharp, pointed instrument, a spike, a spear, a hook, something that would lodge in the flesh and be difficult to get out. And so when Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, he's not talking about some minor annoyance, a cranky neighbor or a bum knee or something. He's describing some chronic source of pain and anguish, something that, that discourages him, something that, that distracts him and even at times can be debilitating, keeps him from serving Christ the way he would want to. So some people have suggested it might have been a spiritual weakness, maybe some besetting sin or some nagging temptation. It's possible, but... 
He speaks so positively about it in the following verses, it's hard to imagine that. Others have suggested it might have been some emotional vulnerability, maybe depression or anxiety or loneliness. That's certainly possible. But the use of the word flesh suggests that there was something physical about this, that there was some physical ailment or disability. And all kinds of things have been uh, suggested. Maybe it was poor eyesight. Uh, maybe it was epilepsy or migraine headaches or stomach disorders, all kinds of evidence that people have found in his letters. But we really don't know. Whatever it was, and even if it had a physical component to it, as it seems to, chances are it also would have involved spiritual and emotional struggle as well. Now, there's also some debate about the source of this thorn in the flesh. Did it come from God or did it come from Satan? And it's a question we often ask when we find ourselves facing some hardship or heartache. Is God punishing me or testing me? Or is this the enemy trying to bring me down? Well, Paul pretty clearly describes it as a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now we know it. it's not God's intention. It's never God's intention to torment us. It's Satan, Jesus tells us, who comes to steal and kill and destroy. In the book of Job, we're given a glimpse behind the scenes of one man's suffering. And there's a lot of mystery there, but one thing we learn is that Satan is the one who inflicts disaster and disease and ultimately death on Job and the members of his family. God is not the author of evil. Satan, that unseen enemy, is the force behind the brokenness of our world and of our lives as well. And so here's Paul's weakness, his thorn in the flesh. And whatever it was, it was difficult, it was discouraging, and it was debilitating. But notice, he doesn't try to deny it. He doesn't try to disguise it. He doesn't minimize it. He acknowledges it. And that really is the first step in dealing constructively with our weaknesses. Just acknowledge the weakness. Admit it. Name it out loud. Remember, we're free in Christ to do that. We learned a few weeks ago that we can come to Christ with unveiled faces. No pretending, no posturing, no hiding. We can be ourselves with him and ourselves and with each other. So before we go any further in this message, I should pause and ask, what's your thorn in the flesh? If you were to identify some weakness, some vulnerability, some infirmity that you struggle with, something that keeps you from living life to the full, keeps you from following Christ the way you would like to, what might that be? It might be something very obvious. It might be something no one even knows about. It could be something you've lived with for a long time. It could be something that has just surfaced recently. Some thorns are more painful or debilitating than others, but we all have them. Pastor Jim sometimes refers to these as our enduring vulnerabilities. Things we struggle with often because of something that's happened to us earlier in life or something that hasn't happened to us early in life. And so those things leave us feeling inadequate 
or insecure and maybe even broken. So we've all got them. And chances are one or two are coming to your mind right now. But those things don't have to define us or disqualify us. In fact, Paul says they can actually become occasions for God to do remarkable things in and through us, as we're going to find out. But if we're going to do anything with them, we have to acknowledge them. So that's the first step in dealing with weakness, is to acknowledge it, to admit it to God, yourself, and maybe even others. We're not only free to do that, we have to do that if we're going to see God do something good with those weaknesses. But Paul doesn't stop there, simply acknowledging his weakness. He then goes on to bring it to God. And that's the second step, is simply bring it to God. Verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Now notice, he doesn't just bring it to God once. He brings it three times. Now, we're not sure if that means there were three specific moments or seasons in life in which he brought this thing to God, or if it's simply a colloquial way of saying, if I asked once, I asked a thousand times. Either way, the point is that Paul repeatedly and passionately asked God to take this thing away. And that's all right. Paul's not a masochist. There's no inherent spiritual value in suffering needlessly. And so whatever this thorn was, Paul asked God to take it away. Set me free from it so it's not a distraction so I can serve you fully and freely. And we can do the same thing. When we find ourselves bumping into something that's keeping us from living the life that we feel called to live, it's okay to ask God to, to heal us, to deliver us, to take it away, to see us through that. And sometimes, miraculously, God does those things. But sometimes, in the providence of God and the fallenness of this world, we find ourselves having to live with this thing for a season or maybe for a lifetime. Sometimes that thorn is not taken away, no matter how long or hard or passionately we pray about it. And please, don't let anyone tell you that if only you prayed harder, if only you had more faith, God might take that thing away. There's nothing in the scripture to suggest that. Are we prepared to say that Paul didn't have enough faith to be delivered? I don't think so. This thorn in the flesh had nothing to do with Paul's lack of faith. It had everything to do with his fallen humanity, as it does for all of us. Like the rest of us, he was a clay pot, fragile, vulnerable, imperfect. And so we bring these things to God, but at a certain point, when we sense what's going on, we no longer ask God to remove it. We ask God to use it. We ask him to do something good and meaningful and significant with it, whatever it is. Remember, this thing was sent by Satan. It was meant to discourage Paul, to disable Paul. But he brings it to God and asks God to redeem it and instead do something good and powerful with it. My grace is sufficient for you, the Lord says, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
It's one of the great verses of the New Testament. God is going to use this moment to to humble Paul and make him more dependent on him and also to reveal his glory and his goodness to the world. And it's a work of his grace. That word grace means undeserved favor, undeserved kindness, power, love, strength that God pours into our lives. So God promises that when we bring our weakness to him, our brokenness, our vulnerability, that he can do something good with it, something significant. Recently, uh, I preached a sermon here at Grace that, that I really struggled with in the preparation. For some reason, that week, I just could not get my thoughts together as clearly, as creatively as I typically like to do. There are a lot of things happening in life and ministry that might have been distracting me or kind of draining my energy or creativity. I'm not sure what it was, but I was just struggling to get it all together that week. Now, I've been at this long enough that I I know how to get it done, and so I was able to get that message together and to present it on Sunday as best I could. But as I drove home that Sunday afternoon, I was ruining all the things I coulda, shoulda said, or one or two things I probably shouldn't have said. And on our Sunday afternoon walk, Karen listened patiently as I vented my frustration and disappointment with the message. It's a fairly predictable routine at our house on Sunday afternoons. (laughs) You can go ahead and roast the preacher at home. I, I do it fine on my own. So anyway, it was one of those moments. I got back to the house a little later that afternoon and picked up my phone. And there was a text message there from one of the campus pastors. And he said that he had decided to give an invitation at the end of that message and that a dozen people had raised their hands to receive or follow Christ. And I thought to myself, that is just like you, Lord. (laughs) To take that half-baked sermon and do something good with it. And the thing is, it really didn't surprise me because that has happened so many times over the years, I've kind of come to expect it. Got a bad sermon going? God must be doing something really good out there. (laughs) It's happened too many times. And every time it happens, I'm reminded. As important as it is for me to work hard and do my best, ultimately, Only God's power can change a person's life. Only God's spirit can find and speak to a person. It's God's word you need to hear, not mine. Even at my best, I am just a clay pot and a cracked one at that. So whether I'm on the top of my game or not, God's grace is sufficient for you and for me because his power is actually revealed in our weaknesses. So you've got your thing, whatever it is, bring it to God. Bring it to him again and again and again. Ask him to take it away if that's on your heart, but if it finds out, if you find out that's just the way it's going to be for a while, then just bring it and say, Lord, do something good with this. Make it count for something. The third step in this little process, after we acknowledge it and bring it to God, is simply to claim God's strength. To intentionally, in humility and faith, invite God to do something with this thing, to intentionally offer it to him. 
Look again at Paul's words. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul doesn't just acknowledge his weakness. He boasts about them. He leads with them. We might say he leans in to his weaknesses. And when Paul says he delights in insults and hardships, again, he's not a masochist. He doesn't enjoy pain and hardship and suffering. What he delights in is seeing what God can do with those things down the road when he offers them up. That God can take what looks to be a disaster or a setback or a hardship and turn it around into something good for the kingdom. And that's exactly what's going to happen for Paul, isn't it? Those imprisonments, those beatings, those arrests, God's going to use all of them. It was because of his imprisonment that Paul was able to bear witness to guards all through the Roman Empire. It was Paul's suffering that inspired other men and women to live their faith more boldly. It was Paul's imprisonment that allowed him to write half of our New Testament letters he wrote from prison. And it was his arrest that eventually brought him to the capital city of Rome, where he preached the gospel to the Roman Empire. God can do remarkable things in our weaknesses and our hardships, not just in spite of them, but sometimes through them. It's hard to speak on this subject and on this passage without talking about the life and work of Johnny Erickson Tata familiar to many of us. Her story is pretty well known at this point. Paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident when she was a teenager, Johnny has spent the rest of her life, 50 years or so, in a wheelchair. And by her own account, if she asked once, she asked a thousand times for God to take that wheelchair away. Lord, wouldn't it give you great glory if you were to heal me in front of the whole world? Lord, think of what I could accomplish for you if I wasn't stuck in this wheelchair. But at a certain point, it became clear in the providence of God that was not going to happen. And so she stopped asking God to take it away and instead asked God to do something with it, to take her disability and use it for great glory and great good in the world. And of course, that's what God has done. And we don't have time to tell the whole story. But the bottom line is that as a result of her, her books, her writing, her artwork, her advocacy, her organization, Johnny and Friends, that's now worldwide in scope, millions of lives and families have been touched and blessed because of her life and work. She has awakened the church all over the world to the beauty and value and potential of every human life. And it wasn't accomplished in spite of her wheelchair. It was accomplished because of her wheelchair. It was her disability that opened up opportunity and influence and impact. But having said all of that, that strength that she got from God, it didn't come automatically or accidentally. She had to ask for it intentionally. In fact, she tells a story. Uh, one, one 
One year, as she was speaking at a women's conference during a break, she found herself in the ladies' room with a crowd of other women around. And one of the women, women who were there, was there as she was fixing her lipstick in the mirror, said to Johnny, Oh, Johnny, you always look so together, so happy in your wheelchair. I wish I had your joy. Yes, several of the women nodded around her. How do you do it? I don't do it, Johnny said. Let me tell you how it works. After my husband, Ken, leaves for work at 6 a.m., I'm alone until I hear the front door open at 7 a.m. That's when a friend arrives to get me up. While I listen to her make coffee, I pray. Oh, Lord, my friend will soon give me a bath, get me dressed, sit me up in a chair, brush my hair and teeth, and push me out the door. I don't have the strength to face this routine one more time. I have no resources. I don't even have a smile to take into the day. But you do, Lord. May I have yours? God, I need you desperately. That's how it works, Johnny said to the women in the ladies' room. Whatever joy you see today was hard won this morning. Now, God's grace has been enough for Johnny, Johnny for over 50 years. But she had to ask for that grace every single day, day by day, for all of those 50 years. And we'll need to do the same. Now, struggling with a half-baked sermon is nothing compared to life in a wheelchair. And maybe not much compared to whatever heartache or hardship or a weakness you find yourself dealing with these days. So I don't want to minimize the struggle with simple solutions and three easy steps. Paul doesn't simplify it or minimize it either. He's simply telling us that when we acknowledge those things, when we bring them to God, and when we claim his strength, which is greater than ours, he can take those things and use them in ways we could never imagine that bless others, that bring us joy, and give him great glory. In fact, often it's our very weakness that opens the door to possibilities, that gives us access to people and influence, that helps us to sympathize with those who are in need. We've talked a lot this year about finding your go, your contribution to God's work in the world. Your go isn't always an expression of your strength and giftedness. It sometimes comes as a result of your weakness and your loss. So it turns out that your greatest weakness is the one you offer to God. Your greatest weakness is the one you bring to God because that's the one God can do something with. That's the one that will keep you humble and dependent upon him. That's the one that opens doors and possibilities to having an impact on the world that you never imagined. So in just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity to bring individually one of our weaknesses before the Lord. But before we do that, and to try to capture and sum up the themes of this series, we're going to hear together a broken to beauty story. So would you welcome to me, uh, welcome with me, Doug and Betsy as they come to the platform and uh, share their story with us.
This current theme of uh, brokenness and beauty uh, and the imagery of the Kintsugi pottery, like this, really resonates with us. Uh, about a year ago, Betsy gave me a gift of this bowl here uh, because we had been discussing how God might see beauty in the brokenness in our lives. We'd like to share a little bit about that with you. Uh, a little background on us. Uh, I'm a lifelong follower of Christ. been coming to grace off and on for over 20 years. I am also a father. I'm blessed by God with three of the most wonderful daughters. They're now in middle school and high school. I'm also a scientist. Uh, one of my passions is trying to comprehend God's creation. I have known the Lord as long as I can remember, since I was a little girl. I've worked as a chemical engineer and a business consultant, but due to health issues, I chose to focus on being a wife and a mom to one delightful son who's now 16 years old. For 14 years, I've also had the privilege and joy of teaching as a children's leader at a BSF class, which is Bible Study Fellowship. Both Doug and I have experienced the terrible pain of divorce, each of us after more than 20 years of marriage. My marriage ended abruptly when my husband left me for a man with whom he had been secretly involved for some time. This completely shattered my life. My past was not what I thought it was. My future was gone, and my present was uncertain. I experienced tremendous pain, shock, and loneliness. But the Lord drew near in ways I had not imagined possible. He provided strength, practical help, and comfort, especially through his word. For example, three weeks after my husband moved out, Valentine's Day fell on a BSF class night, and the passage was from Isaiah 43. It says, you are precious and honored in my sight. I love you. The Lord had sent me valentines. <laughs> I was not alone. I felt so beloved and cherished by God that year that I had never felt more beautiful. God was already healing my broken heart with his extravagant love. After 20 years of marriage, uh, I also went through divorce, a thing I had fought long and hard to prevent. In my case, this happened after about three years of separation. It was an awful tragedy. It led to years of excruciating emotional pain. My identity as one who aspires to be a loving and humble husband and father was shattered. I was left trying to be okay with the feeling that a big red D for divorce was on my back. A lot of my recovery happened here in divorce care at Grace Chapel, and I'm grateful for that program. After stumbling around for a while, I learned to be content with singleness for my life's plan. I wanted to be the best father I could to continue to be a passionate scientist studying God's handiwork. I learned to accept God's ways as something beyond my comprehension sometimes, in my life and in nature. In this season, I think I grew in a humble reverence towards God. God also took care of my son. My son Casey was nine years old at the time of my divorce. His world became frightening and insecure. But Casey found hope in reading the book of Job. 
He thought that if God would give Job a new family, maybe he would give us one too. Three years later, we were looking for a new school for Casey, but to my surprise, all his applications were rejected. I sensed God calling me to homeschool. I would never have imagined myself homeschooling, but God knew that being at home where he felt safe was just what Casey needed in this season. It enabled him to recover a sense of stability and security. Two years ago, my girls and I started attending the East Lexington campus. And thanks to Pastor Tom there, we became involved in a wonderful life community. Betsy has also been involved in a different life community. We had never met, but a kind and thoughtful woman who knew both of us suggested that we should. About a year and a half ago, we exchanged emails. Some of our first emails discussed how Kintsugi might represent our lives. We then went on a blind date for coffee, and we talked for six hours. <laughs> After three dates, I was fairly confident in Betsy's character, and I thought I could see where God was likely to lead us, so I told her I'd probably marry her if she ever decided she wanted to marry me. I'm not typically so impulsive, and I don't recommend this approach except in the rarest situations. <laughs> she didn't decide quite so quickly, but it didn't take her long. As I learned about Doug's character, I became convinced that he would be an excellent, loving, and committed husband, and I was right. Last summer, we were married in a joyful celebration. And soon after, God provided a house in a location that works well for all four of our children. Because Casey was homeschooled, changing schools wasn't a problem. We know that blending families is a difficult thing, but God is making a beautiful creation of our lives. Our family is amazingly well-matched, and even our kids agree that it's genuinely harmonious at home. The kids are similar ages, and all four have found a deep sense of belonging in our family and our friendships at our East Lexington community. On our wedding day, Betsy gave me a gift, this Kintsuki bowl. It's our reminder that God creates beauty out of brokenness. As one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buechner, says, terrible as well as wonderful things have happened to us all. Although we know there still may be hard times, we're in a very joyful season. <laughs> wonderful things have happened to us, more wonderful than we expected. And whatever comes, we choose to honor God with the brokenness and the beauty of our lives. Thanks, Doug and Betsy. We've learned that the work of the Kintsugi artist is to take broken pieces and fit them together and join them together in ways so remarkable that the object becomes more beautiful and more useful and more precious. And as I, the first time I listened to Doug and Betsy's story, it struck me that's exactly what God has done in their lives, taken the pieces the piece of Betsy's brokenness and her self-esteem and restoring it with a, a declaration of his love and, and worth and pleasure in her. The piece of Casey and his stability and security and well-being in a time of transition, and he met that need. 
providing for Doug divorce care, a place that brought healing and restoration to his soul and his faith, and then finding enough strength there to now be able to, to participate in that as a minister and bring care and, and strength to others as well, and then leading the two of them together and now bringing a household and a family together in a way that they now are becoming a new clay pot, a jar of clay, imperfect, flawed, vulnerable still, but being filled with the life of God to satisfy their own needs, but also to be poured out and to bless the world around. That's the work that God does of bringing beauty from brokenness. Our sorrows, our failures, our alienations and separations, and our weaknesses, he brings them together and does something wonderful with them. And all of it is possible because Christ himself came into our world and was broken for us, took our brokenness to the cross where he suffered the consequences for all of it, and then rose from the dead to offer the possibility of resurrection power, to raise us above those things and beyond those things, to be the people and live the lives that he had in mind from the very beginning. So we'd like to give ourselves, as we finish up here, this long journey we've been on, to take some broken piece of our lives, the relationships, and offer it up to God. In just a few moments, we're going to make available to everyone here in the room, in whatever venue you're in, uh, a simple shard of clay, a piece of a clay pot, just like this. We're going to pass them down the aisles, and we'll explain how it's going to work in a moment. And we'd like you on one side of that uh, piece of clay to write down some some area of brokenness, a weakness, a failure, a loss, a sorrow, a vulnerability, just write it down. And on the other side, write down what restoration and beauty might look like. Maybe it's a work God has already done in your life that you want to thank him for, or maybe it's a work that you're praying he will do in your life or a relationship. And so it's going to allow you some time to do that. It's the musical start. We'll give you time. We realize you may not all have a pen with you. We decided not to hand out a 1,000 Sharpies for lots of good reasons. So find a pen, borrow one if you'd like, or if you need to, just do that at home. Brokenness on one side, beauty on the other. Let's pray, and then we'll go ahead. Lord, there are a thousand different stories being told in this room and other rooms that are listening to this message, each one of them involving some measure of, of struggle and pain and brokenness, and yet each one providing an opportunity for you to just do something new and good and beautiful. So Lord, we pray in these next few minutes that you might meet each one of us personally. Give us the freedom to name that broken thing out loud to you, and then, Lord, may we receive your strength, your healing, your restoration, your help. Meet us in these moments, Lord. Do something good in our lives. Thank you for making this possible through your son, Jesus Christ. May your grace be sufficient for every person hearing this message today. In Jesus' name, amen.